Well, uh, what a tremendous joy to be here this morning. This is Calvary Bible Church. It's good to be here. Um, I've visited uh, one, maybe twice, two services so far, and sat in the back there with my friends and, uh, and uh, thought, what, would it, what would it be like to develop more friendships here at this church? And, and we've done that uh, over these last weeks and months uh, via email uh, with some of you. And uh, just to be here this weekend and to be at the missions conference yesterday was a tremendous joy. And it's kind of like being in a family. And I want to say thank you for letting us be a part of the family. It's a, a real joy to be here. And I've been preparing my heart to, to address you this morning and uh, feel so privileged to, to be invited to, to do that. And so it's just great. I want to bring you greetings from the faculty and student body of the Shepherds Bible College. Uh, they uh, said to say hi. In fact, uh, back in New Zealand, everything's reversed. So our academic year is just kicking off right now. We've just had summer. And the year is beginning, and so yesterday we had an orientation day at the college, and I was there leading that, and then I jumped onto a plane and flew for one hour, and then flew on another flight for 12 hours, and got here, and actually, believe it or not, I arrived here in LA before I left New Zealand. <laughs> and so, so I've lived Saturday twice, and I'm a day older than the calendar tells me I am, but it's okay, because when I go back on sun, next Sunday, I get the day back again and everything returns to normal, so it's all going to be okay. <laughs> my, my wife, Serena, she's not here. She's up on the screen. Beautiful, huh? She, uh, she says hi. She couldn't be here, um, but she's going to come back with me in July. I need to come back to the Master's Seminary to attend some seminars, and uh, we're actually, uh, uh, we are going to celebrate then our 20th wedding anniversary. And so uh, we'll come and uh, I'll go to the seminar and then we're going to do a, a vacation in New York and uh, visit Boston as well. So that's the plan and maybe some of you can meet her then. I want to express our sincere appreciation and thankfulness for the new relationship that uh, has been put in place between Calvary Bible Church and the Shepherds Bible College. And it really is because of people like yourselves, because of your prayers, because of your support, because of your interest in our ministry that we can do what we do. And so I want you to see us as an extension of this church. And, uh, and as such, uh, feel free to come visit. We'd love you to do that. Come to our conference, as Pastor Jack mentioned. Come, you can work in all kinds of ways in the kitchen and serve in lots of different ways, get to know the people and even enjoy the conference, which I'm sure you would do. And, uh, and we would love to partner with you in that way. And another opportunity, if you've got a little more time on your hands, maybe a year, okay, and, uh, and you want to experience New Zealand for 12 months, you can do that by coming to the Shepherds Bible College as a student, and uh, you need to be 20 years old and uh, have a little bit of money, but not as much as it takes to go to the master's college. I guarantee you that. It's cheaper to come to New Zealand and study there. And all you needed to do is pay for your flight and uh, some room and board. And uh, I think our fees are in, U in U.S. dollars, only $4,000. It's not much, huh? Come, study, enjoy the country, learn to speak Kiwi. And, uh, and you'd enjoy the year. We'd love to have you there. You know, um, it's an exciting ministry to be a part of down there. And it's about to get more exciting because in June, uh, your own Pastor Jack and Lisa and Mark too, I believe, 
that are coming to New Zealand to speak at our conference, and we're excited to have them. And I wanted to say this. I want to say thank you for releasing them to be, to be able to come. So I know that there is some sacrifice on your part to let them go. But I want to say that because the sacrifice that you're making is, just means so much to us. And it's an indicator to us that Calvary Bible Church is not so inwardly focused and myopic and selfish that you're unwilling to think about other ministries because you are. And you're supporting other ministries. That means that you have this outward focus, which is so healthy. So I want to say thank you for that. Thank you for sharing them with us. And uh, we, we pray that uh, we'll give them a great time in New Zealand. They'll come back, you know, speaking Kiwi. They'll uh, say things like, g'day, mate. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing the stories from them as they return. Well, I really love the theme of the missions conference. It's the word compel. And if you were here last night, you would have heard uh, that word several times. The word comes from uh, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke. Now, Luke 14 is not where I'm going to be preaching from this morning, but I thought I might do just a little review, if that's okay. In Luke 14, uh, there is a parable there about a rich man who wants to put on a large banquet And so he gets his household together, and they prepare the meal. Everything's good to go. And uh, and the invitations have been sent out. But guess what? No one wants to come. These these guests who have been officially invited, they're, they're not turning up, but they send excuses instead. There's one guy, and he says, well, you know, I've just bought a piece of land, and I need to go take a look at it. Well, what kind of lame excuse is that? I mean, if you were buying a piece of property, wouldn't you go check it out first? I mean, this guy knows exactly what this property looks like. The, the, the fact is, he just doesn't want to come to the dinner. And he's just making an excuse. There's another guy, and he says, you know, I've just bought these five yoke of oxen, and I need to go try them out. Well, you tell me, before you buy a car, do you take it on a test drive first? Of course you do. I mean, this guy, he already knows about these oxen. He's already tried them out. He doesn't need to do it again. He just doesn't want to come to the dinner. He's got no interest in that. He's making excuses. Then there's another guy. He says, well, I just got married. I can't come. Yeah, to be honest, you know, of all of the excuses, this is probably the one I understand the most. <laughs> it's okay. But I still want to ask, ask the question to this guy. You know, this is just one evening. It's a social occasion. It's not like you're being asked to go away on a long trip or to go to war and leave your wife for a long time. In fact, if you were to bring your wife to the dinner and enjoy this occasion together, it would be a wonderful experience. Why don't you want to come? I mean, this guy's just making excuses too. That's what I think. So all these invited guests have no interest. And so the master says to his servant, he says, well, go out there into the streets and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And so the servant goes out and he finds these people and he brings them in. And guess what? There's still some more room. And so the master says to the slave in Luke 14, 23, he says, go out into the highways 
and along the hedges and compel them to come in. There's the word, compel. The parable is a wonderful picture of how God loves those who appreciate him. You know, really, the story is about uh, the gospel uh, and God's grace and forgiveness being extended to Jews. But guess what the Jews did to Christ? They rejected him as their Messiah. So the master says to the slave, okay, if those people don't want it, go get the people who live on the streets and live under the hedges. Uh, These are people, these are the beggars. These are the, the outcasts. These are the the homeless, the unwanted of society. And so the slave goes out and he compels them to come in. It's a wonderful story of God's grace to outcasts. Here's a question. Where do we fit into all of this? I imagine in a room this size, there's probably a lot of Gentiles and maybe some Jews. No matter who you are, If you are the Lord's, if you are someone who has confessed your sin and sought forgiveness from Jesus Christ and accepted him as your Lord and Savior, then you could identify yourself as one of the compelled. Agreed? We are the compelled. That's our first part in the story. But there's a second part. In addition to being one of the compelled, we also have the responsibility of becoming a compeller to go out and to compel others to become compelled (laughs) like we have been. I'm sure you know this already. I mean, you understand the responsibility of a believer to minister to unbelievers, to tell them about the gospel, to tell them about Christ and to compel them to come. But here's the question I want to ask this morning. How do we do this? How do we compel people to come to Christ? How how can we compel anyone to value a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? You know, in New Zealand, I'm sure you've heard that we've just had this big earthquake in Christchurch. Hear about that? I think uh, by the time they find all of uh, the deceased and count the bodies, there'll probably be around, be around 200 people who have died. This is a major uh, earthquake, devastating for the country of New Zealand. I think even here uh, in Northridge, there weren't that many uh, died in the Northridge earthquake. But um, because of the devastation and because that city which is far uh, further south uh, than we are. We didn't even feel it in our area. But we wanted to minister to the people of Christchurch. And so we sent a team down there just the other day to go uh, help with some children's programs because families and businesses are trying to you know, get things set up again, get things running, and uh, they just needed some help with looking after children. So we sent a team down, and I went to the airport to see, to see the team off. I wanted to pray with them. And encourage them not only to, of course, model Christ-likeness and, and, to, and to be there with the people and to uh, befriend them and to minister to them, but also to be compellers. But you know what? It's easy to tell someone you need to be a compeller. 
it's not so easy to show them how to do the compelling. That's the question I want to discuss this morning. How do we compel? I think the answer to that question can be found, at least in part, in Psalm 32. So I'm going to ask you to go there with me. Psalm chapter 32. Take your Bibles and turn there if you would. And I think that Psalm 32 is what some might call the classic Old Testament passage that models for us how to compel someone to confess their sin. And I want to read this chapter with you. But before we do that, let me just cover some introductory things first. When you get to the psalm, look at it. Look at verse 1. And you'll see there that either in verse 1, depending on which translation you have, or just before verse 1, there is a title. And uh, that title says this. It says that it's a psalm of David. Now, that obviously tells us who the author of the psalm is. It's David. And then secondly, the heading tells us that this psalm is a mascal. See that word? That word mascal is an interesting word. Some would say that it has to do with the artistic merit of a psalm. And it could well be just that. Others say that a mascal is a type of psalm that has a teaching component. The author of the psalm, then, is a teacher, if it is a mascal. And we can certainly see this here in Psalm 32. David is writing the psalm, and he's taking on the role of a teacher. He is teaching his people in this psalm. So let's read it together, and just keep that in mind. Let's start, then, in verse 1. A psalm of David, a mascal. How blessed is he... whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin, Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to thee in a time when thou mayest be found, Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not reach him. Thou art my hiding place. Thou dost preserve me from trouble. Thou dost surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Don't be like the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, 
all you who are upright in heart. Now remember that this psalm is a teaching psalm. And David is the teacher. He's like an instructor here. And this is what he's teaching. He's saying to his people uh, that it is good to confess sin. In fact, I think as we survey this psalm, that David is giving us six reasons to confess sin. Six wonderful motivations that will compel an unbeliever to go to God for forgiveness. And they really are encouraging reasons. We know this much, that David was a big sinner. He knows the wonderful grace it is to be able to confess sin. So whatever he's going to say here is going to be extremely practical because he's been there and done that. The first three reasons come from David's own experience. I mean, you could say that these are David's, uh, this is David's testimony. This is how he has been in himself since he confessed his sin. So let's jump into these first three reasons. And think, think of it this way. David is going to show us how to compel others to confess their sin. That's what he's writing about. Look at this. Reason number one. The first reason to confess sin. It's found here in verses one and two. And basically David says this. I am glad I confessed my sin because now I'm happier. Look at verse 1. David says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is lifted, whose sin is covered. And then in verse 2, Blessed is a man against whom the Lord considers no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, if you look at those two verses, do you see there that David uses three words to describe his sin? Did you see them? Three words. He, he calls his sin his disobedience, number one, transgression in verse one. That's an act of rebellion or disloyalty. And then in verse two, he calls his disobedience sin. That would be an act that directly messes with, with the revealed will of God. And then thirdly, in verse two, he calls his disobedience iniquity. And that's a consciously crooked act that involves an intentional plan to do something wrong. Now notice that David here is not really specifying particular sins. All he's doing is he's describing his comprehensive sinfulness. We could go back though to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 and identify his sin. And you know the story, don't you? David uh, was meant to be out fighting a battle, but he decided this time that he would stay at home. So he sends all the men off to Rabah, and they are involved in a war. He stays home in Jerusalem, and the only other people in the city are women and children. Well, that's a big mistake to begin with, yeah? So he's up on his roof, and he looks down on a lower roof, and he sees a woman, Bathsheba. And he covets that woman. And he sends a messenger down and, and calls her. In fact, the word it gives us there in Second Samuel 11 is that he took her by force. 
And so she comes and, 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 and he commits adultery with Bathsheba and finds out soon after that she's become pregnant. Well, that's such a shock to him and very embarrassing, a shameful thing that he has done and he knows it. So he's got to cover this up somehow. So he calls Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, back from the battlefield. He comes to Jerusalem and, uh, and David says to Uriah, you know what, I really think uh, you've been working hard out on the battlefield, you've been fighting, why don't you go home and enjoy the night with your wife? Why does he do this? Because David needs Uriah to spend the evening and night with his wife so that when the baby arrives in nine months' time, everyone would assume that Uriah is the father and not David. See, David is wanting to create this lie about what has really taken place. So he's coveted, he has stolen another man's wife, he's committed adultery, he's lied about it, and then guess what? Uriah, the husband, refuses to go sleep with his wife. So David has to come up with another plan. He conspires to murder this man. And that's exactly what happens. He sends him back to the battlefield. He gets there. Joab, the commander, puts him at the front of the fighting, and he dies. Not only does he die, but some of his fellow soldiers die. So now David is not only responsible for Uriah's death, but also some other men have died as well. Then David is in the clear because he can take Bathsheba as his wife, marry her, And everyone, we hope, would assume that the baby was his. Now, David was a big sinner, just like us. The prophet comes to him, and the prophet challenges him. says, David, you have sinned, and David recognizes it. And he confesses his sin, and he breaks down. In fact, if we were to read Psalm 51... That entire chapter is David's confession of his sin. But then, after some time, and we're guessing maybe a year has passed, some long period of time, and in that time, David has been restored. He, uh, he's confessed his sin. His standing with the Lord is back where it used to be again. His confidence has been regained And now he writes Psalm 32 for the purpose of teaching others not to do what he did. He held on to his sin. He kept it a secret. He had this guilty conscience and he didn't want to tell anyone about what he had done. He certainly didn't want to tell the Lord. He realizes now, after all this time has passed, that that was a terrible way to live life. And he wants to show others in Psalm 32 that if they would confess their sin, that they would feel better about themselves. Their relationship with the Lord would be restored. And so here in Psalm 32, David is reveling in the blessing that comes if a sinner airs their dirty laundry, so to speak. If a sinner confesses openly his sin, stops being deceitful, and takes it all to the Lord, stops lying to himself and to the Lord, 
and confesses it to God, you know what happens? After they've done all of that, blessing comes. This is how we can compel someone to consider Christ. We can go to them and say to them, you know what? You would be happier if you only recognized your sin and confessed it. You'd be happier. I mean, this is David's testimony here. He says he was happier. Now, Proverbs 28 verse 13, it says this. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. If you conceal them, you hide them, keep them to yourself, you will not prosper. But it says this, he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You know, the temptation for any of us when we sin is just to keep it a secret. Huge temptation. Now, there are those sins that people observe and they might come and confront us and challenge us. And that's great. But there are many sins, aren't there, that we commit in private. Only you and the Lord knows about them. But what happens if you don't confess those sins is that your conscience builds up and builds up and feels more guilty and more guilty and you lose your happiness. There's no joy in the Christian life. And what David is saying here is don't keep your sins a secret anymore. Confess them and you'll be happier. That's what we can say to our unsaved friends. By the way, this is not some seeker-sensitive message. I mean, this is what David is saying here. It's simply, you are happier if your sin is dealt with. We can say that too, to our unsaved family members and friends. Look at reason number two. It's the second reason to confess sin. And it's found here in verses three and four. And these two verses, David basically says it this way. He says, I'm glad that I've confessed my sin because now I am healthier. Now I'm healthier. You can tell this to your unsaved friends. You know what it was like to have all that sin in your past building up and building up and then you confessed it and then the weight of that was released. You just feel a lot better. Look at verse 3, because this is what David is saying. Verse 3, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My vigor was set as by the dry heat of summer. Selah. Think about this. You know, in medical circles, it's long been known that the mind affects the body. It just does. Uh, It affects one's physical well-being. You know, whether it's stress in the workplace or maybe there are family trials or troubles or relationship tensions, all of these things take a mental load on us that does uh, affect our body. That is especially true when it comes to unconfessed sin. Our bodies can't handle that. And the normally energetic person is reduced to immobility when they feel the weight of their guilty conscience. In David's case, you know what he says? 
He says his bones wasted away. His vitality was sapped. His strength was depleted. His energy levels were at an all-time low. He became sluggish. That's what happens when we have a guilty conscience. But look at this. Look at verse 4. I want to ask a question. Verse 4. Whose hand was heavy upon David? Who was it? It was the Lord. God was doing this to David. We need to understand this. That a guilty conscience is a gift from the Lord. A guilty conscience is a good thing. Because a guilty conscience will show us that there is something wrong with our relationship with the Lord. A guilty conscience tells us that we are not walking in a way that pleases him. We need to learn to listen to our conscience. So often we try to just put it aside, run away from it. It doesn't work. It does not work. But a guilty conscience is a blessing if we listen to it. You know, somewhere out there, soon we're going to walk out these doors. Somewhere out there, God is making someone's life a misery. Deliberately. In preparation for you to go and give them the good news. You know who these people are. You know, the absolute best way to be a successful compeller is to find the unsaved people out there who have a guilty conscience. Find the people who are weighed down by their sin. There were lots of people invited to that banquet who weren't interested. Uh, they, just, they, they had excuses. They, they didn't care. No interest. Go find the ones who have a guilty conscience. The ones who are feeling the weight of their sin. The ones that are worried and concerned about what's going to happen to them when they die. Find those people. You know, we all have friends and family members like this. I mean, think about it. Just go down your list of friends, family members. You know who they are already. You know the ones that are feeling the weight of their sin. Go and compel them. Tell them two things so far, two things. If you confess your sin, you'll be happier and you will be healthier. It's a great message. And this comes from David's own testimony. You know, it was funny. I was in preparation for this reading a commentary, a really old commentary. And uh, it rephrased David's words. And the commentator said it this way. Just think of David speaking here. He says, my bones waxed old. My strength was exhausted. And it seemed as if the decrepitude of age was coming upon me. The decrepitude of age. I mean, David was feeling so guilty that he felt, what? Old. He just felt old. That's the horrible nature of guilt. I want you to note something here. As we do our evangelism and we're explaining the gospel to people, you don't want to overpromise things either, okay? Nowhere in this text does it say that the person who confesses sin will have perfect health. That's not the point of the passage. 
David is not saying that. I mean, you, you can't promise unsaved people perfect health. Probably if you did, many of them would come for the wrong reasons. Now, what David is saying here is that after he confessed his sin, even his body was relieved of the weight of that burden. That's it. And then at the end of verse 4, did you see it? David says, Selah. And that refers maybe to a, a musical interlude of some kind or a pause. Whatever it is, it's an opportunity for the listener to think about what David has just said. And that's what we're doing. Think about it. There is absolutely nothing like a clear conscience. You've experienced this, haven't you? When you put your head on the pillow at night and you know that everything is well between you and your Lord, you can sleep easy. It's better than a sleeping pill. I mean, you know that everything is good between you and God and you can rest. That's what a clear conscience does. You can compel your unsaved family members with this. Tell them that if they confess their sin to God and ask for forgiveness, commit to loving him, they will be able to say with David, I'm happier and I'm healthier. Number three, third reason to confess sin, the third motivation, you might say, for unsaved friends and family members. It's found here in verse five. Look at it. In verse five, David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. And did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you lifted the iniquity of my sin. Selah. The Lord lifted the weight of David's iniquity off his shoulders. What a relief. The pressure is gone. He doesn't have to think about that anymore. He doesn't need to worry about that anymore. In fact, when you look at verse 5, it seems that he's repeating many of the same concepts that he spoke of in verses 1 and 2. I revealed my sin, I uncovered it, and the Lord covered it. I confessed my sin, and the Lord lifted it. Now, he was forgiven. You could say it this way, and here's reason number three. David was healed, spiritually healed. He was restored to full communion with his Lord. His guilty conscience was healed. The hurt and the shame of the past year had been removed forever. And the healing that took place in that moment surpassed the pleasure that sin had brought for the whole year prior to that. I remember when I was 14... In New Zealand, uh, the school system's a little different. I was in the fourth form. Uh, here, when you're 14, you're probably, where are you, where are you in school? Ninth grade? Something like that? Okay. I was 14, and uh, I, in school, I was always one of the, the good boys. Never really got in trouble at all. Uh, but my friends used to do, get in trouble all the time. And back then, of course, uh, the punishment for doing something wrong was either the leather strap or the cane. And often the students would be sent off to the principal's office to get the cane. Anyone had the cane? Oh, they don't do that in America. Okay. <laughs> the New Zealand's tough society. But I, ne I never got the cane or the strap. 
And more and more, I was looking like the odd one out. Um, because, because everyone else got that, but I never did. And so because I was the outcast, so to speak, I, I devised a plan to regain some, uh, some respect with my fellow students. And uh, this plan was executed on a day on which we had cooking class. We were supposed to take t- uh, an egg to make a cake. I told my mother that I needed two. And so we turned up to the classroom, and the students were there. The teacher had not arrived yet. I took my extra egg, and I placed it up on top of the door to the classroom. This is the door that the teacher would come through. And I basked in the glory of the moment, because right at that moment, my friends loved me. Like I had joined the ranks. This was a wonderful thing. It was fantastic. I was one of them. Well, I sat down and we waited and all the kids were kind of giggling, you know, in anticipation of what was about to take place. And uh, I heard my teacher walking down the hallway and uh, he came through the door and I tell you what, it just couldn't have been a better shot. I mean, this egg, it dropped and landed right on the top of his head. The only redeeming factor in all of this is that he was bald, and so cleanup was pretty easy. I could identify with that. (laughs) And you know, the kids were laughing. I was laughing. I was the funniest thing. But get this, my teacher, Mr. Froman, still remember him. He was in his 60s. He walked with a cane. And he was the sweetest old man. And he had always treated us with kindness. And uh, this egg fell on his head, and it took him a little while just to recover and to even figure out what had happened. The kids were laughing. He looked up with a tear in his eye, and he said, Who did this? And and the classroom, classroom went silent. Who did this? No one said anything. I didn't say anything. And you could see in his face this disappointment. I remember the look even now. Well, guess what? I've never had the opportunity to go to him and apologize because two years after this, he died. Now, he was a frail old man, and he succumbed to his ailments For two years I stayed silent, and the guilt remained with me the entire time and remains even till today. And I can't go see him. A guilty conscience is an unyielding thing, and it takes its toll on us. And we can try to put it aside, we can try to forget it, but God deliberately has installed in all of us this internal disposition, this conscience that feels guilt when we do something wrong. We are meant to feel this way. And David here, he finally comes to this place where he yielded to his conscience. He understood his sinfulness. He confessed it. He uncovered it before the Lord. He repented from it. He sought transformation and God granted forgiveness. I mean, there's nothing better in the world. As a result, 
David was happier, he was healthier, and he was healed. And this is what you can tell your friends. Isn't this your testimony and mine? We all who have come to Christ experience this exact same thing. We all are healthier, happier, and healed. This is how to compel someone. Just tell them your testimony. Tell them what the Lord has done in your life. Because it's a wonderful message. These are the first three reasons to confess sin. But that's not all. There's more. Three more great reasons to confess sin. And the next three come uh, in David's instructions to others. Now, if you're taking notes in the bulletin and you turn it over, you need to write the next three uh, yourself because I don't think they're there on the outline. But notice here that David really turns to his, we'll call it his public teaching ministry. The first half of the psalm, that's David's personal testimony. Now, in verse 6, we get to his public teaching. Now his focus is not so much his testimony, but what he wants to teach others. And you can see it in verse 6 because the first word there is therefore. So David is changing his focus. And he takes all of the lessons that he personally has learned and he wants to teach others and apply these things to others. So reason number four to confess sin. It's here in verses 6 and 7. Let's look at those. In verse 6, David says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you at a time when you may be found. Surely the mighty floodwaters shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You protect me from trouble. You encompass me with songs of deliverance. Selah. David is simply saying this. If you confess sin, you will. Guaranteed, find a God who will protect you. You could say it this way. You'll be harbored. That's the fourth reason to confess sin. Maybe you could tell that to someone this week. You know what? If you confess your sin, you will find a God that that harbors and protects you. He just will. You know, the word harbored... It pictures a sailing boat coming off of the open ocean where maybe the, the wind has picked up and, and the ocean is stormy, lots of waves. They come into a harbor, a small inlet where it's calm. They are, the, the ship is harbored there. It's protected there. That is what the Lord will do to a sinner who confesses sin. God is a gracious father who protects his people from mighty floodwaters. We don't need to be afraid of him. We do not need to be afraid. He doesn't reject penitent sinners. In fact, a penitent sinner will be treated three ways. Look at these at verse 7. It says there in verse 7 that that God himself will be our hiding place. That's number one. Number two, he will protect us from trouble. And then number three, he will surround us with deliverance songs. Think about that. Don't we have a good God? This is a wonderful place to be. This is a safe place. Verse 6 says flood waters can't reach us there. And I guess it conjures up pictures in our minds of even the flood that happened in Noah's day. 
when God decided that the world was so sinful that he would, he would drown them all, he would judge them all and wipe them out. That flood was, pur- was purposed by God himself. God hates sin. God judges sinners. But David says this. He says, listen, if you will confess your sin, God will relent. He will not judge you. His judging hand will not strike. You'll be harbored. You'll be sheltered from judgment. So this is how to compel someone. Go out there and tell your unsaved brothers and sisters, your mothers and fathers, your children, that God will withhold his judging hand if they confess their sin. They'll be protected instead of judged. Look at verse 6 again. It says there, not to delay. You know, pray while God can be found. Pray while there's an opportunity. Because you know what? There's a day coming when the opportunity to confess will be done. Now, my teacher, Mr. Froman, he's dead. I can't go to him. I can't seek his forgiveness. But what's worse than that is there a day coming when none of us would be able to go to the Lord to seek his, his forgiveness if we had not done it yet. So don't wait, David says. Approach God today. You'll find a welcoming, merciful father. You'll be harbored. Here's the fifth reason to confess sin. Found in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, David says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. It's interesting. David is saying, look, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to counsel you, so please don't be stubborn. He's saying, if you listen to my words, you will be helped. That's the fifth reason to confess sin. You'll be helped. You'll be helped. David commits to helping his people. He will be their teacher. He will be their counselor. And he will keep his eye on the people. Now, uh, there are some who would take these verses uh, as the Lord's words. And that could be. But the context here seems to indicate that this is David. And he's just continuing on in, in his role as a teacher. And David gives this instruction. He offers this counsel. And, and he, then he promises to keep his eye on the nation. This is David just being a father, being a shepherd. And he says, hey, I'm just trying to help you. Trying to help you all. Now, you can do the same with your classmate or your workmate. You can go to them and say, listen, I just want to help I'm not your enemy. I don't hate you. I love you and I want to help. Listen to me. Look at what David says in verse 9. He says, don't be like a horse or a mule. Now, just picture just for a moment a mule. Uh, what picture does a mule uh, bring to mind? A picture of stubbornness, yeah? I mean, a donkey just can't be moved. A donkey wins the top position of immovability in the animal kingdom. A horse, on the other hand, a horse just runs everywhere. And the issue with a horse is not so much will it move or not, but rather where will it go? A horse needs to be bridled. 
Mules won't budge. Horses need to be directed. And David says to his people, well, don't go the wrong way like an unbridled horse and don't be like a stubborn mule. Listen to my advice. I'm trying to help. It's good advice. That's what we can do when we get out these doors and we're compelling people to come to Christ. Tell them that you've got good advice. Now, you probably don't want to call them a donkey or a mule. But we know in our minds that's what they are. They just are. They need to listen to us. They don't want to move. But compel them to move. David says, listen to my voice here. And you can hear in him the voice of experience because years leading up to this, David had been there. He had done that. He'd held on to his sin. He kept it a secret. And now he's saying, you know what? I look back on those years and I was just a mule. I was an unbridled horse. Don't you be like that. Don't do that. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live with a guilty conscience. Let me help you. I mean, doesn't this get the evangelistic juices boiling in you? This is not hard. You know how to compel someone? Tell them your testimony. Tell them what it feels like to be forgiven. Compel them and say, listen, I want to help you too because you can join me in worshiping Christ and experiencing the joy of being a believer. Reason number six, the sixth reason to confess sin. It's found in verses 10 and 11. And David says, if you confess your sin, you'll be happier. You'll be happier. David is finishing off where he started. He started with happiness. He's finishing with happiness. You you could say, oh, Nigel, you haven't done your addition right. This is really only five reasons to confess sin. Well, that's true. But David says there's six. And just because he repeats one doesn't mean there isn't. We can say this twice. You know, listen, someone once said this. The cause of sorrow is not sorrow itself. It's unbelief. I believe that. You know why unbelievers are sorrowful? It's because they don't believe. Period. This is what David says in verse 10. Look at this. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but loyal love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. I think that's so good. You know, the the unbelief of the wicked can only result in sorrow. That's because, when you think about it, you know, the world will tell us they're happy. But really, the only joy an unbeliever can experience in this world is temporary and superficial. It's soon gone. Imagine that. I, I, I try to put myself in the shoes of an unbeliever. I can't imagine what it would be like not to know that my sins can be forgiven. That, that would be a terrible way to live. It's a terrible thing to try to consider. Verse 10 says, The sorrows of the wicked are many. When you go out these doors... And you speak with your unbelieving friends and family, and they tell you they're happy. Don't believe them. It's not true. It is not true. They are sorrowful. They're guilty, and they know it. David says here, 
If you trust in God, we are surrounded by hesed. That's loyal love. That's grace, loving kindness, unfailing love. It's the kind of love that trumps all of the other kinds of love. And if your unbelieving neighbor wants to experience that kind of love, go to them and tell them they can have it. They can have it freely. All they need to do is confess their sin to the Lord. Then in verse 11, David says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout with joy, all you upright in heart. I mean, what other response could there be? We know for sure, it's absolutely guaranteed, and we know this, that our sins are covered, they're blotted out forever, erased forever, lifted off our shoulders, wiped away, the eternal consequences of your sin and my sin will never be experienced by us. Jump for joy, shout. That's why we're here this morning. You know, an old Jesuit priest said this. I think it's fascinating and right on. He said, joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. And he said, grimness is not a Christian virtue. There are no sad saints. He said, if God really is the center of one's life and being, joy is inevitable. If we have no joy, we have missed the heart of the good news. And our bodies, as much as our souls, will suffer the consequences. I believe that. I don't think there are sad Christians. There can't be. How can a Christian be sad? Well, maybe they don't understand the gospel. Maybe they're not Christians. But for those of us who are, we're rejoicing in God's grace today, aren't we? Isn't your heart leaping within you? I mean, God has been so gracious to us, so kind. And this is what happens when God heals a guilty conscience. Listen. Our job is to compel people to come to Christ. You can do it six ways. The first three involve just telling your testimony. You can say to them, you know what? I've become a Christian. I've had my sin forgiven. I love the Lord. He's changed my life. As a result, I'm happier, I'm healthier, and I'm healed. You can tell them that. And then you can turn the tables on them. And you can say, you know what? You can experience the same because if you confess your sin, you'll be harbored and you'll be helped and you also will be happier. That's a wonderful message. And you can say to them, you know what, I'm just trying to help. But that's how to compel them. Give them reasons to become Christians. When you walk out of here, will you do it? Will you do it? That's the question. I mean, you call me a missionary? No, you're the missionaries. We all are missionaries. And we need to be out there compelling people to come in. You know what the key is, though? Finding the people who are weighed down with the burden of their sin. That is the key. How do you do that? Talk to them. Get to know them. Have them over. Enjoy their company. Ask questions. Find out where they're at. Find the people who are hurting over their sin. 
and then tell them about Christ. Can you do that? Compel them. You know, uh, in the late 1800s, D.L. Moody, a great preacher of that time, he was visiting uh, prisons and he went to one prison called The Tombs. Rather ominous sounding prison to me. And he went there and he, he preached the gospel. And after he finished preaching, he went around the various cells and he was talking to the men. And as he spoke to the inmates one at a time, he would ask basically the same question, you know, what brought you here? Why are you in prison? And every time the uh, inmates gave him the same response. They said things like, you know, I don't deserve to be here. I was framed. Uh, I was falsely accused. Uh, my trial was unfair, whatever. Not one inmate would admit their guilt. Finally, Moody found a man, walked into a cell, and the man had his face buried in his hands, and he was weeping. And Moody said, well, what's wrong, my friend? And the prisoner responded, my sins are more than I can bear. You know what Moody said? He said, praise God for that. At last, someone who was ready to hear the gospel. And he had the joy of leading that man to Christ. That's what we need to do. Find the people whose sins they're just not handling them. Find the people who are bearing the weight and the guilt of their life. How about you? Maybe even here in this room, there is someone who has not yet bowed the knee to Christ, has not yet gone to the Lord to seek forgiveness. If that's you, you would feel so much better if you did it. <laughs> You don't have to live a life of guilt. You don't have to live a life separate from the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you would just come to him, seek forgiveness, give your life to him so that you would recognize him as your Lord and Savior, worship him with the rest of your life, you could be saved. You could be happier, healthier, healed, harbored and living a life that is so pleasing to him. You would be over the moon, be over the moon and rejoicing with him. Let's pray. Father, most of us here in this room are here because you have already shown to us your grace. You have already shown to us your mercy and we rejoice and we just want to say thank you. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for sending him to die in our place. We pray, pray, Father, that our lives would bring you glory. May we transition from being the compelled to being compellers. Help us in the task, Lord. Help us to be faithful. And we commit ourselves in the task to you because we know that it would bring you glory. We pray in your name. Amen.